Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. And Lord, so thank you for speaking to us through this passage in Jesus' name. Amen. Bill, Tennessee, this past week, uh, just another uh, heartbreaking tragedy with this shooting, a number of people uh, killed, uh, including children, and it's just, you know, you just run out of words to characterize the, the sorrow and, and the pain of these events. Uh, a lot of outrage uh, about another mass killing, and um, just something that's just been dominating the news, and uh, some of us just feel just helpless, like, what, what, what can we do? What can we do? If there was anything to be praised in that whole situation, if you've been watching media reports, uh, it, it is at least one small little bright spot, and that is it was the actions of the Nashville police. And uh, <clears throat> a lot of media reports are drawing a contrast between the Nashville police and the police force back in uh, Uvalde, Texas. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right. Uvalde, Texas. Back in May 22, you might, you might remember another um, a shooting there, but um, in Uvalde, the police were, were very hesitant. They, they were indecisive. They, they didn't act. They, they held back from moving in to try to correct the problem. The Nashville police, very different. Um, they, were, they were proactive. They, they didn't hesitate. Um, they went into the problem and uh, ended up saving lives. And the, the chief of police was commenting and saying that, you know, these police officers, they heard the shots being fired, they knew that danger was ahead, and they went inside anyway. And so, you know, they're, they're, they're heroes. And <clears throat> something similar was said about the, the, the head of school, who um, sadly also lost her life. I'm not sure we know exactly what she did, but somebody was commenting on her, Catherine Kuntz, and um, the, the comment was that if there was ever trouble in that school, she would run to it and not from it. She ran to the problem, not from the problem. That's what a hero does. They run to the problem, not from the problem. Well, here we are on Palm Sunday. <clears throat> it's um, the first day of Holy Week. That is the, the, last, uh, the first day of the last week in Jesus' earthly ministry. Um, very interesting as we're going through the book of Mark here that, that um, the last third of the book of Mark covers the last seven days of Jesus' life. So a huge portion of the gospel is devoted to this small time. And in fact, 20% of the book of Mark is given to just the last day of Jesus' earthly life. So that should tell you that these events that we're about to, stu <laughs> about to study are very important, uh, at least in, in Mark's view. And so, what we see here in um, Mark chapter 11, this text that um, uh, is the first Palm Sunday, is we're seeing Jesus run to the problem and not away from it. Uh, if you're looking for a hero, Jesus is your hero. Not to diminish the heroic acts in Nashville, but in ways far beyond what anybody else has done there is trouble in this world, right? That's what makes our hearts so sorrowful over these kinds of shootings. We just know the world is messed up. It is just such a broken place. 
And yet we have God in the flesh, in the person of Jesus, who's not remaining aloof, but he runs to the problem. He enters into it. And that's really what Palm Sunday is all about. It's Jesus entering Jerusalem to go to the problem. I mean, I don't know if you've thought much about Palm Sunday. It kind of seems like one of these kind of minor holidays, I I guess, compared to Christmas and and certainly Easter. But here's something to note. The birth of Jesus is actually described in only two Gospels, but Palm Sunday is in all four. And of course, the cross and resurrection is in all four. But maybe Palm Sunday is, is more important than we, than we sometimes realize. Jesus, not running from the problem, but running to the problem by entering Jerusalem. Now, if you've been following us here in the study of Mark, you, you might notice that uh, we're jumping ahead to chapter 11. And uh, the reason is because if we just kind of continued to go through Mark, we'd get to this text like three weeks after Palm Sunday, and that just seemed kind of awkward to me. Um, So we've just moved up chapter 11 to coincide with today. Um, We will get back to the passages in chapter 10 that we haven't gotten to yet. So go back to chapter 10, and then we'll return to uh, chapter 11, verse 12. Uh, at the proper time. So we're picking up here, Mark chapter 11. If you're able to stand, uh, please do so. And uh, let me read this passage, just the first 11 verses. And uh, actually, my slide is not advancing now. So there we go. Dan, did you do that or did I do it? Yeah? All right, good. Okay, very good. Thank you. Mark 11, 1 through 11. Hear the word of the Lord. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it. We'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Holy Spirit, come, open our eyes and open our ears to see and hear wonderful things in your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You can be seated. So, Palm Sunday, Uh, your Bible might have a little word there at the top of this text, the triumphal entry, that's referring again to Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. You might remember that what I've been saying throughout 
Um, our study of Mark is that uh, Mark has been trying to present to us who Jesus is and what His mission is, but in this second half of the book, we're seeing Jesus make His way toward Jerusalem. So, again, we've skipped ahead a little bit to get to chapter 11, but He's arrived. Here He is. He, he, he's at Jerusalem. He's entering this city, and uh, we're going to look at three things that characterize this particular entrance. And the first thing is the way he enters Jerusalem, and that is he enters Jerusalem in peace. He enters Jerusalem in, in peace. Um, you know, there are different ways to make a point, actually. You know, obviously you can say, you can use uh, verbally, you can express a point, but you know, you can make a point by just what you do also. You know, you could just give some kind of an action and it communicates something. And that's what Jesus is doing here or what Mark is presenting to us uh, about what Jesus has done. That is, Jesus communicating to us <clears throat> by what He is doing. So, let, let's look at these details. For, there, there's two things in particular I want to point out here. Uh, one has to do with verse 1 here. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Mark points out, that they're at the Mount of Olives. That's important to consider. What could be the meaning here? Well, the Mount of Olives was uh, a, a mount just east of Jerusalem. Mount kind of gives the impression it was a mountain. It's not really a mountain. It's just kind of a big hill. It's about 300 feet higher than Jerusalem. So, not, not necessarily a big place, but it's kind of looking down on Jerusalem. And that's where Jesus and the disciples are as Jesus prepares to enter into the city. But there's great significance to this place called Mount of Olives. And we have to go back to the Old Testament to consider this. Uh, the prophet Zechariah in chapter 14 um, tells us this. This is uh, uh, <clears throat> a prophecy about uh, the coming judgment and destruction of Jerusalem. And Zechariah says, Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when He fights on a day of battle. On that day His feet will stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. So, you know, this might seem like an obscure detail to you. Oh, going back to the book of Zechariah, who knows what goes on in Zechariah. Uh, but friends, d don't forget that the Jews knew their Bibles a whole lot better than you and I do. They knew their Old Testament well. They knew the significance of the Mount of Olives. Mark is including this here because he assumes most people are going to get it. And the idea is that when Jesus comes on the Mount of Olives, that He is taking the place of the Lord Himself who is coming to fight on behalf of His people. So the Mount of Olives is included here as a messianic reference to Jesus as the Lord Himself coming to defend His people. But the second thing that we see here, that is the second kind of nonverbal action that Jesus does to communicate something about Him, has to do with the cult. And so, um, <clears throat> we see here in verse 2 that Jesus gives directions to His disciples. And He says, "'Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it to Me.'" Um, so, you know, we might kind of wonder exactly what, what is going on here, um, kind of seems like Jesus is, uh, you know, directing His disciples to steal somebody's property. Uh, you know, sometimes people uh, interpret this as Jesus having kind of omniscience and just looking ahead uh, as to, to what He knows is in the city, and so He's just sending His disciples to get this cult 
because he knows all things. But maybe a better way to look at this is that Jesus has probably made a prior arrangement with the owner of this cult because, you know, if you notice um, what he says in verse 3, if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and we'll send it back here immediately. But notice Jesus doesn't say, if the owner says to you, why are you doing this? You think that would be the more likely thing to say, right? Tell the person who owns this cult what's going on. But he doesn't say that. He says, if somebody's observing and they see you doing this, tell them the Lord has need of it. The implication is maybe it's because Jesus has already made arrangements with the owner. The owner, the owner knows what's going on. So I, I don't think there's theft uh, involved here. But in any case, uh, this cult is very important. Jesus wants to enter into Jerusalem on, on a cult. Now, a cult is just a, you know, a young horse or, or a young donkey. Uh, it's mentioned here in verse 2 that he wants a, a colt on which no one has ever sat. Now, that's probably, probably a reference to um, the Old Testament requirements that if an animal was to be used for sacred purposes, it must not be an animal that was ever used for ordinary purposes. If an animal is set apart for sacred use, it must be set apart for that. It can't be just an, an ordinary animal. And so, uh, Jesus wants a colt that has not ever even been ridden. That's how separate, that's how sacred uh, this task is that Jesus is about to engage in. So, He's going to get on this colt and He's going to ride into Jerusalem on this, this young donkey or this young horse. Now, to understand this, also we have to go back to the Old Testament and think about what is said about donkeys and, and colts and entering cities. And there's a pretty clear text in Zechariah also, this time Zechariah 9. <clears throat> and um, Mark does not quote this, but uh, Matthew and John both do. They quote Zechariah 9 when they describe this same incident. Uh, I'm not sure why Mark doesn't mention it. Maybe he assumes his readers know. I don't know. But but, but clearly, this is the idea, the background. Here's what it says. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, your average Jewish person would have seen this as a, a messianic promise that when the king comes, when the Messiah comes to Jerusalem, he's going to be riding a donkey, a colt, and he's going to be coming in humility, humble and mounted on a donkey. See, the, the contrast here that you're supposed to see is that Jesus is entering Jerusalem in a lowly fashion, in a humble fashion, without a lot of the pomp and circumstance that would surround um, other kinds of kings who might come into a city and make a big deal and look for attention. You know, Mary and I have been watching um, The Crown lately, uh, the story of Queen Elizabeth. And one of the things you notice when you watch this show is that there is just so much ceremony around everything the queen does, you know. I mean, she's got her crown, and she rides in a special carriage. She's always surrounded by servants waiting on her opening the blinds for her in the morning. She can't even open her own blinds. Someone's got to do it for her. And, you know, if you want to talk to her, you've got to request an, uh, uh, an appointment. And 
They give you directions. Okay, if you go in and talk to the queen, don't sit down until she does. You can never sit before her. And once you sit down, don't say a word until she speaks. You can't speak before her. Of course, there's the bowing and the curtsying and all, all these things surrounding the, the, the kings and queens of this world where so much adulation is given to them. Well, th- th- this is a different kind of king in Jesus. He's coming humble. He's not, he's not coming with all of this kind of praise and adulation. He's coming not with soldiers. He's not coming on a chariot. He's not coming on a war horse coming on a donkey. I mean, that's just a tremendous thing. You know, if somebody came to your house and they drove up in a Ford Escort, you'd say, how can I help you? You know, it'd be a very friendly encounter. If somebody came up your driveway in a tank, (laughs) you'd get a little bit nervous. What does this person have in mind? Why? Because a tank says, I want to fight. And coming on a war horse symbolizes, I want to fight. I'm coming to fight. I'm coming to destroy. A donkey is like a Ford Escort. <laughs> a, a donkey, a colt, just says, Look, I, I, I'm, coming, I'm coming humbly. I'm coming, I'm coming in peace. Jesus comes in peace. He has come into this world in peace. He's come to offer you peace. He's coming to give peace to your troubled heart. As you think about the tragedies of this world and it fills you with so much sorrow and rightfully so and you're so worried about what's going to happen later this week and there's so many things that are troubling you and Jesus says, my peace I give to you, my peace I leave with you. He is the prince of peace. He offers peace for your heart. He offers you peace in your relationships. He offers to teach you how to love your spouse and your children and your friends, and your enemies. He teaches you how to forgive, mostly by the example He has set in the forgiveness that He offers us. He offers peace in your relationships, and He offers, more importantly, peace between you and your Creator. When you trust in Jesus, all hostilities come to an end. Romans 5.1 says, we have been justified through faith, and therefore we have peace with God. There is nothing better, friends, for you when you lay your head on the pillow at night to know than that you're at peace with God. Your conscience is clear. You're right with God. Before Him, you're not guilty. Before Him, you know you're loved and accepted. And it's because of what Jesus has done on the cross for you. There's peace for you with your Creator. That's that's. That's why Jesus comes in. That's the manner in which Jesus comes into Jerusalem because we have to remember that when Jesus comes into this world, He he comes in two stages, right? The first stage is what happened 2,000 years ago, the very first Christmas when He came on a donkey and He came offering peace. But Jesus is coming again. And when He comes again, according to Revelation 19, here's, here's how He's coming. Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. In the second coming, Jesus isn't coming on a donkey. He comes on a horse, and the one sitting on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness He judges and makes war. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty on His robe and on His thigh. 
He has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. See, when Jesus comes the second time, He is coming to wage war. That's the final judgment of all mankind. But until then, you have an opportunity to meet Him in peace. And that's good news. And I would just encourage you, meet Him now while you have time. You don't want to meet Him when He comes on the horse. You want to meet Him now when He's come on a donkey. And the way to meet Him is just to receive Him, just to say, Lord God, I'm just sorry. I have sinned against You, and I want Your forgiveness. I want peace with You. I believe in what You have done for me. Save me. That's all you got to do. And you will have peace with God. So Jesus enters Jerusalem in, in peace. But the second thing to see here is that Jesus enters Jerusalem to praise. He enters Jerusalem to praise. So verse 4, this picks up. The disciples, they do as they're told. They, they get the cult, and just like Jesus anticipated, somebody says in verse 5, what are you doing? And the disciples say that Jesus has need of it, and so they say, okay, and they let him go. And uh, Jesus then <coughs> sits uh, on this donkey, and it, it doesn't actually say this, but we know he's entering Jerusalem, so he, he begins to kind of ride down um, this, this Mount of Olives, the 300 feet descent into Jerusalem. Now, this would have been during the time of Passover, which is a very, very important Jewish holiday. So, Jewish pilgrims would have been making their way to Jerusalem from all parts of Israel. And the uh, historian Josephus said that there could be as many as 2.7 million people coming into Jerusalem for the Passover festival. And so when Jesus is on this donkey with His disciples and they're coming down the mount, He's kind of getting caught up in this pilgrimage. You know, it's just kind of like rush hour traffic, you know, it's just there's more people on the highway and you're all packed in. Well, it's rush hour here at Jerusalem and everybody's coming in to the city and they start to notice Jesus here uh, riding on the donkey. And, you know, apparently they know something about who He is and so they start reacting to this. And, um, it says um, in verse 8 that many, so that's referring to this, this crowd, <coughs> spread their, their cloaks. A cloak is like a coat or a cape. And they start throwing their, their cloaks on the ground in front of Jesus on the colt. And uh, not just these uh, cloaks, but verse 8, again, these leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. Um, so, now, again, Mark doesn't say palm branches here, but we look at the other Gospels, and these branches are identified as palm branches. And so, that's where we get our description of this day as Palm Sunday, because they were waving palm branches. Now, why would they be rain, uh, waving or laying down palm branches? And probably the reason, there's some mystery around this, but about 150 years prior to this, there was something called the Maccabean Revolt. And uh, the Jews were kind of always under the thumb of some oppressor. And so 150 years earlier, they, they revolted. And uh, there was um, a guy named Simon, I think it was Simon Maccabees. And he was the leader of this revolt. And the Jews were able to free themselves from their oppression at that time. And when this Simon guy had gained his victory, they all gathered around and celebrated him and they waved palm branches. So the idea is that these palm branches are like a, like a symbol of national deliverance. And that's what these people are, are thinking. Maybe Jesus is another Simon. Maybe He's going to liberate us from the oppression of the Romans. And so 
um, they, they start these, these chants uh, in verse 9. They um, start shouting these, uh, these words here. And, and these words come from Psalm 118. That was our call to worship from this morning. And Psalm 118 was a, a psalm that the Jewish people would very often recite when they were traveling to Jerusalem for religious festivals. And very often when they would recite and shout these verses, they would do it in kind of a responsive way. And so that's the way it's kind of written here. You know, probably verse 9, one group said, Hosanna. And then another group said, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then someone else said, Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. And then another group responded, Hosanna in the highest. When I was at a Pacer game on, on Monday night and these people kind of came up and they, they said to one part of the crowd, you know, you say go. And then this other part, you say Pacers. And so they stood up, go. And then he turned here, Pacers. And then go, Pacers. And we kind of went back and forth. And that's kind of what would go on very often with these Jewish pilgrims. It's responsive readings. Of course, sometimes we do this in, in church services as well. But that, that's probably what's happening here. And again, they're quoting from this Psalm 118. And so, uh, here's the actual psalm. I just read to you what Mark says here, but here's the psalm from which this comes. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. Now, save us, we pray, O Lord, the transliteration of that actually just is, is Hosanna. So really, that's what Hosanna means. Save us, Lord, we pray. And so that's what these people are, are yelling, save us. They're probably thinking, save us from the Romans. don't think they really get the significance of Jesus coming, but nonetheless, they're looking to Jesus for salvation. And they're saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So clearly they're thinking of Jesus as the one who is coming in the name of the Lord. And so it's like the day has come, this Messiah has come, and, and so they're heaping praise on Jesus. They're celebrating him. The king has come, and they're so happy, and they're so ecstatic. And so they're giving these chants and these celebratory shouts of praise to Jesus and then notice how this passage ends. It's very odd. Look at verse 11. And he entered Jerusalem, and he went into the temple, and when he had looked around at everything, it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. It's like, wait a minute. What happened to those crowds? Where did everybody go? I mean, it kind of looks like Jesus is there in the temple by himself. Where is everybody? A guy named James Edwards, commentator, says this, Mark's account is noteworthy for what does not happen. The whole scene comes to nothing. Mark is warning against mistaking enthusiasm for faith and popularity for discipleship. Jesus is not confessed in pomp and circumstance, but only at the cross. It's a very important insight to what is going on here. I mean, it turns out this really isn't so triumphal of an entry. It just kind of falls flat. And I think there's a warning here to us. You know, friends, it's really easy to give Jesus praise in the temporary moment. It's a little harder to give Him praise over the long haul 
of the difficulty of life in a fallen world. It's easy to give Jesus praise when things are really good. It's hard to give Jesus praise when you have a cancer diagnosis. You know, it's easy to give Jesus praise when all the crowds around you are also giving Him praise. But how about when all the crowds around you are saying, crucify Him? Then are you going to give Him praise? I mean, that's the challenge. Jesus is standing alone in the temple. Are you willing to stand alone for Him? No matter what the crowds say, no matter what popular opinion says, Jesus enters to praise, but it's a fickle praise. It's an inconsistent, it's a weak and flimsy praise. It's a praise based on popularity. And may the Lord give us grace to praise Him, not just during good times, but bad times also, not just today, but tomorrow and every day of our lives until we take our final breath. So Jesus enters Jerusalem to praise one last thing. Jesus enters Jerusalem with purpose, with a specific purpose. Because here's something that is often alleged or kind of suggested uh, about Jesus as He comes to Jerusalem and as things get really dark and difficult for Him and as the Pharisees and the Jews come after Him, um, that sometimes people see Jesus as kind of a victim. You know, like He like this is an unsuspected tragedy, you know, oh, I just kind of wish Jesus hadn't even gone to Jerusalem, then none of this would have happened, <laughs> you know, or if He had an opportunity to escape and get out of there, He probably would have, but no, He got trapped, and then He had to go to the cross. You know, sometimes people think that way about Jesus. That There are even some theologians who have, who have called the gospel cosmic child abuse. You ever heard that? It's a guy named... Um, <clears throat> Steve Chalky and Brian McLaren, two theologians, have said this. You know, the idea is the Father sends the Son into the world to die, and so they interpret that as saying, well, the Father is inflicting pain and suffering on His innocent Son. And humanly speaking, if a father ever did that to his son, we would call that abuse, and so that's what's going on here. This is cosmic child abuse, they say. Now, Not only is that wrong, that is actually a blasphemous thing to say. And one of the reasons we know this is because we know that Jesus entered Jerusalem with purpose. He had an intention in mind. There's no accident here. He's no victim. He knows what He's doing. And the reason that we can say this is because Jesus has announced at least three times in the book of Mark that this is exactly what's going to happen. And he probably said it more, but Mark records it for us three times, pretty significant, and let me share those with you. Mark 8, 31, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days, rise again. This is what Jesus intends. This is what Jesus knows is going to happen. 8, 31, 9, 31, these are actually easy to remember based on the verses, 8, 9, He was teaching His disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill Him. And when He is killed after three days, He will rise. And then we just go one more chapter, 1033, 831, 931, 1033. 
See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn Him to death and deliver Him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock Him and spit on Him and flog Him and kill Him, and after three days He will rise. Jesus is saying this over and over again. He is entering Jerusalem with purpose. Yes, the Father sent the Son to die, but the Son willingly complied in obedience to His Father. That, that's probably the first second. That, that's one of the main reasons that Jesus is doing this, in obedience to His Father. But the other reason why He's doing this, friends, the other reason He's with purpose entering to Jerusalem is because He wants to save you. And he wants to save me. That's His purpose. That, that's His intention. He's not going in to the city reluctantly or begrudgingly or wishing he could do something else or looking for a way out. Yeah, there is the Garden of Gethsemane. I know that. I mean, there, he was anticipating some intense suffering. So there was apprehension, but I don't think in Jesus there was ever any desire to do anything other than what the Father called him to do for your sake and for my sake. And the book of Hebrews even takes it a step further and says it was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross, despising its shame. Garden of Gethsemane, there was some real anguish in Jesus, but don't forget what the writer to the Hebrews says. He went to the cross joyfully to some degree. Friends, it was Jesus' joy to die for you. You know, sometimes somebody might do you a favor, and, and you just kind of get the feeling that they just kind of resent it. And it's just like, you know, if you're going to resent it, don't bother, right? I mean, I don't want your favor if it's going to make you angry. I don't want your favor if, if you're not really into it. But what happens when somebody does you a favor, and you say, hey, thanks very much, and they say, it was my pleasure. It was my pleasure to serve you. It was Jesus' pleasure think I can say that, to die for you. I don't mean to minimize the suffering that he endured, but it was for the joy that was set before him. That's why he entered Jerusalem, with purpose, with intention, to save you, to save me. So this is Holy Week. Um, today, we are beginning this week ahead. Um, this is the, the greatest week of the year. Uh, this week is better than spring break. It's better than March Madness. Um, it's better than, than even Christmas week, really. It's, it's the best week of the year. Today's Palm Sunday. Jesus enters Jerusalem. Tomorrow, He's going to cleanse the temple. Tuesday, He'll deliver the Olivet Discourse. Wednesday, they'll begin plotting about how to kill Him. Thursday, Last Supper, Garden of Gethsemane. Friday, trial, crucifixion. Sunday, empty tomb, resurrection. That's the week we look forward to, and it's all because Jesus ran to the trouble and not away from it. He went into Jerusalem to defeat His enemies and to save many lives. And you can know that you're one of those lives if you will simply trust Him and give your heart to Him. And you can know that you are one saved by this great Savior. So what a week it is. Let us enter it and prepare for it in reverence and awe.
God, thank you for your word. Thank you, Jesus, that you have pursued us. You've come after us. You entered Jerusalem, not reluctantly, but in obedience to your Father and in your love for us, and we are forever grateful and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.